Hello and welcome to the REIT Report. I'm your host, Sarah from Quito, and today we're looking at the evolution of farmland as a real estate asset class. Joining me to discuss the latest research on farmland is Pierre Rigaud, Vice President, Advisory and Consulting at Green Street. Pierre, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me, Sarah. So I wanted to start by asking you um, to talk about how large the farmland real estate segment is today. Uh, what are some of the key crops and what is the ownership structure? Yes, sure. So U.S. farmland you know, is one of the largest commercial real estate sector, actually. A lot of people don't know that. Um, estimates range you know, between two and three trillion. It's a, it's a pretty uh, wide gap, but definitely put it uh, as one of the larger sectors uh, among and more traditional commercial real estate sectors. And what's interesting, interesting as well is it has, you know, an estimated very little institutional ownership, roughly maybe one percent of that. Uh, that's compared to other more traditional commercial real estate sectors, typically between five and fifteen percent. Uh, so that has, that's the size of the sector. The key crops, um, what you need to, to remember is the two broad groups: row crops and permanent crops. Uh, row crops. Uh, the you own the land and the 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 soil is your asset and that's your uh soybeans and and these types of um you know corn these types of more commodity um uh, uh agricultural uh, uh crops and then as far as permanent uh crops that's you own the the land and your uh your asset is the trees and that's your orchard uh, and these types of these types of assets. So uh, obviously, these two different asset classes have very different risk profiles. Um, row crops tend to generate more predictable uh, cash flows compared to permanent crops, which are a bit more prone to, let's uh, say, climate disruptions and some other uh, long-term risks. So there's definitely variation um, uh, considerations and, and differences between these two asset classes. Now your last your last point. What is the ownership structure? Um, there's many ways to to invest in farmland, but when we talk about farmland REITs, at a very high level, they purchase agricultural land and they lease it to farmers. So they're not involved in the operations and uh, the harvest of of the of the crops. Uh, and what they do is they have a land lease with the um, uh, with between the landowner and the farmer. The the farmer pays a lease to to to, to the landowner to the REIT. And it's typically a, a mostly stable uh, cash flow, and we can go through uh, through some of the, you know, the, the considerations around that cash flow uh, later on in the call. So it does sound that institutional investors are not really that familiar with farmland as an asset class. Would you agree? Agreed. Yes, I think it's not very well understood. What probably is common knowledge is the at a very high level, maybe the supply and demand dynamic. Uh, behind, uh, you know, the, the demand drivers of the sector. So I think a lot of people know that there's, you know, uh, increasing population, increasing demand for food, and it's been constant uh, over the, the last, you know, 40, 50 years. Sure, there's some talk about vertical farming and all of that, but that's not really moving the needle when you think about the, the vast, you know, uh, amount of corn that you need uh, for food and also to, to, feed, uh, to feed livestock and all of that. So I think that that's pretty well understood. What's not understood is how do farmland real estate investments compare uh, to my traditional real estate investments? How do I go about doing that? And uh, I think that's what we're trying to do a little bit in, in the in this primer, the U.S. farmland primer, try to put a framework around how to think about uh, assessing risk returns, you know, short and long-term growth prospects, capex, etc. 
I would say three quick points on, on how does it differ uh, from traditional real estate. One is obsolescence. You know, there's, there's obsolescence risk in traditional real estate, depending on, on, on the sector based on, uh, you know, um, evolving trends. Uh, buildings get less attractive over time, can't come in the same uh, amount of, of, uh, of cash flow and um, just, you know, can't sustain that competitiveness in, in the marketplace. Farmland is very different. Uh, there's, you know, been evolving farming practices, which for the same acre of land, we cannot produce, you know, three um, eggs or four eggs times more food than, you know, 40 or 40 or 50 years ago. So there's really uh, less obsolescence risk in the sector. Number two, fungibility risk. Uh, when you think about traditional real estate, uh, there's, you know, changes in, in, in the way consumer, um, you know, uh, go about doing things over time at a very high level. Think about e-commerce and you know, kind of the demise of, of retail, uh, the benefit of industrial. Here, it's it's um, really if there's evolving eating habits, uh, farmland can adapt. You can change the crop and and adapt to to whatever uh, is the, the evolving demand. And I would say the, the the last point is you know a relatively low capex burden. Land and farmland is not is not does not depreciate unlike unlike a typical building, and improvements to to the crops, water access, and all of that is typically uh, relatively low capex compared to most traditional real estate sectors. And you've already mentioned REITs. Um, how active are they in farmland real estate? Can you talk a little bit about what a typical lease could look like, and is there room for rent increases? Yeah, so like I mentioned, there's, there's many ways uh, you could invest in farmland. If you choose to go uh, through the REIT avenue, they, one, of the, one of the benefits is that they offer one of the most direct exposure into the sector. Uh, you know, and we can talk about the, the attractive demand drivers there, but it's one of the most direct exposure. And obviously, as a REIT, you get one of the highest liquidity uh, you know, benefits among other investment alternatives. So there, there are two REITs right now. One of them, Farmland Partners, has a strategy of trying to replicate the the U.S. Uh, agricultural landscape. So in their portfolio, they own about the same, uh, I would say, you know, uh, the same um, about 70% row crops and maybe 30% permanent crops, which is which is about you know proxy of of the the, the U.S. agriculture. Now they own most mostly very high quality. Uh, assets across the U.S., uh, so that's where it differs, maybe from uh, you know, I guess from a proxy of, of the U.S. as a whole. And the other REIT is Gladstone Land, and they are a little bit more focused into, I would say, coastal markets and and more into permanent crops, which is a different uh, strategy. But really, two two REITs in the sector, two public REITs at least, and pretty, uh, I would say, small market cap compared to you know other REITs in other sectors. So, you know, not really, you know, REITs are not really active. Now, there's other companies that are, that, that are not public REITs that also invest um, in the sector through more opportunistic <coughs> avenues. Uh, but obviously, the REITs, uh, as you know, need to be a bit more conservative uh, in the way they invest. Now, as far as the lease I mentioned before, um, the, the landowner has a lease with the farmers. There's really two types of lease. Uh, of leases. The first one is fixed. Fixed rent lease structures typically more prevalent with raw crops, such as corn or soybeans, and they provide a more, I would say, passive participation in the returns. 
which is appropriate considering uh, the more predictable operations of, of this type of crops. Variable rent lease structure is the other one, and they offer more, I would say, active participation in returns. And it's mostly uh, based on the, the, the production price and yield of that uh, harvest that year. And that's more prevalent and appropriate for permanent crops, your trees and your orchards. How much room is there for rent increases? The last part of your question, well, if we backtrack a little bit, the way the farmer uh, makes money on the crop is the expected price and the expected yield. So how much they're going to harvest uh, this year and how much can they sell it for? I think there's a little bit of misconception in the marketplace as far as the price, at least for row crops, uh, prices are you know, typically very much variable. Uh, the typical commodity price is very much variable uh, in in the marketplace. And that's really based on very short term, you know, imbalance in supply and demand. So when you look at the longer term, um, really, uh, you know, farmers are able to, to adapt and, and sell at, at more opportune time and are not really bothered by the very short term, um, you know, imbalance in, in, in prices. So, I think when we talk about rent increases uh, over time, does it come from for price, from price or for yield? Uh, and I guess the qu- the question is, you know, can farmer um, can they can they pay more over time to to the landowner? And the question is productivity yield, uh, productivity growth for the yield. Uh, when you look again in the 1960s, we could produce maybe one third and one fourth of of what we're able to produce now per acre of land, meaning we can, uh, farmer are able to generate much more revenue per acre of land. And over time, the landowner is able to participate in these increases of, in, in revenue. So is there room for, for rent increases? I think it's a question that we need to look at it over more the long time period, not, not so much, you know, next two or three years. And the, the answer should be yes, as long as there's more productivity growth for the crops. So what would you say are some of the main demand drivers behind farmland real estate today? That's the easier question. So the main demand drivers of farmland real estate are inherently tied to the demand drivers of you know, farmlands in general. So like I mentioned before, commercial real estate sectors exposed you know, to long-term secular shifts in demand, constantly adapting to, to you know, evolving needs of societies. Farmland is different. The essential component is meaning you know, uh, one of the most basic needs of humans, which is food consumption. And agriculture uh, specific has benefited from tremendous innovation over the years, which has, like I just mentioned, um, really helped with productivity growth. But really, there's been no fundamental disruptions in the way food is produced and how food is consumed. And land is still the essential component for food production. So when you look at supply and demand, I would say the thing that need to remember is population growth has vastly outpaced the growth in available arable land worldwide, uh, which has actually led to a shrinking stock of available agricultural land per capita. And in some countries, that's globally. When you look at the U.S. and in some more uh, developed countries, the supply growth has actually been uh, negative, which is obviously unlike anything you've seen in other uh, more traditional real estate sectors. The reason for that is, you know, land being taken offline for commercial real estate development, uh, maybe for transportation networks and some other uses. So increasing demand, shrinking supply, very unique uh, dynamic compared to the more traditional real estate sectors. And can you describe the long-term performance of farmland real estate and its volatility compared with other property sectors? 
Yeah, so the, the, the caveat here is, you know, the tremendous throw of data around agriculture that you can, you know, anyone can find uh, on, on the internet, but really not much around farmland real estate. Now, the best proxy is the NECRIS farmland index. It's about the 13 billion uh, pool of individual farmland properties. And, you know, it's, I would say it's, yeah, again, it's the best proxy, but it has its limitations. Apart from this caveat, I would say U.S. farmland has had a very strong track record of delivering relatively attractive returns over long holding periods, especially looking against the, you know, the S&P merit index. It's been less volatile and the, you know, land appreciation has been one of the major factors of that outperformance over time. And what you see is farmlands can actually be a very powerful hedge against other, you know, uh, other type of, of investments like equities, you know, and commercial real estate. For example, Macri's farmland index, that's the, the 13 billion pool uh, that I just mentioned, that index was up about 20% during the GFC, uh, which obviously is unlike uh, virtually much higher than any other investment classes at the time. So it can be a powerful hedge, but even in, in times where, you know, where the market is, is favorable, I would say it's, it's kind of a steady growth, which is really backed by uh, land appreciation over time. How much should the recent pandemic and climate change concerns factor into farmland real estate investment decisions? So I would say the, the recent pandemic, well, there's, you know, there's been some, some spike in demand, uh, just like right now, maybe with some of the uh, supply chain issues that we have. That's more short term. When you look at the long term, the way to think about it is, you know, in times of distress or in time of pandemic uh, or, or some type of, of a recession, what's being cut, cut first is discretionary spending, right, from consumers. But what they obviously still spend money on is food. So, no, in short, the pandemic has not really changed the, the long-term outlook of, uh, you know, of farmland uh, real estate. As far as climate change, so that's an interesting question. Over the very long time period, we'll, we'll have to see the effect of climate change. But right now, if you look at the landscape of the U.S., you have a lot of farmland, both row crops and permanent crops, that depend on water supply, you know, think about California and some of the droughts that we've had. And that's, that's challenging, right? Because water is obviously one of the main aspects of, of productivity, you know, in farmland. When you look at some of the farmland in some of the more wet aspects of the, the U.S., uh, the wet regions of the U.S., like Michigan and uh, Illinois, these are, you know, I would say much less impacted by probably uh, climate change in, in the future. So definitely, uh, when you think about climate change, access to water is the main risk for, damage, uh, for damaging high-quality land, farmland, in, in certain U.S. geographies, and that's definitely something to keep in mind now. The flip side of that is, again, it's going to make some farmland less attractive if they have less access to water, and it's going to make then uh, the other type of farmland, because of the kind of shrinking supply, even more valuable. So really, uh, interesting way to, to look at the sector and obviously the more long-term play, but definitely something to keep in mind, access to water. And Pierre, if I could just add one final question, if you could, based on everything you've said, if you could sum up your view on farmland real estate in terms of its attractiveness as an asset class. Yeah, I think, uh, look, farmland real estate, definitely worth looking into if you if you have a bunch of traditional, even some non-traditional uh, commercial real estate investment in your portfolio right now. 
you, you know, you can expect a lower yield at the lower end of, of your uh, traditional investment. But at the same time, the risk is also uh, drastically lower than, uh, I would say, you know, the other type of real estate. So when you think about, you know, the risk return ratio, it's really, it can be an interesting play. And again, it's been proven uh, to be quite stable over time, growing at a steady pace and much less volatile than other other type of investments, which again can be a great hedge in, in the balanced portfolio. Pierre, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Sarah. And to our listeners, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe or leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform.